Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In times of spiritual and moral chaos, it can be hard to discern truth from error and to apply it to all of life. God's word is not silent, and we don't have to be either. This is Once for All Delivered with Caleb Castro and Andrew Smith. Hello, OFAD lads and lasses. This is another episode of Once for All Delivered. This is about our fifth take to try to start this recording, but we're giving it the old college try once more. So I am Andrew Smith. I'm Caleb Castro, and I'm not sure that we want to give it a college try these days. That's true, and we'll get into why here shortly. We've done a little bit of recording recently, but we were kind of working through a backlog of episodes we recorded in the latter part of last year and then into January, and... Now we're in mid-February, and we've decided to basically go back and revisit some prior topics, do a bit of a roundup show, a bit of a miscellany, looking at some things we've talked about before, new developments, updates, changes, things of that sort, expansions on topics we've talked about before. So in theory, I don't know how this goes because of the way we talk about things, but in theory, we're going to do a bunch of topics and short looks at them. And uh, yeah. Yeah. So, in other words, there was a lot of stuff that we could have chosen specifically, but there's so much it seems like that has happened in the past week or two that we're coming across in the news and, and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, so we're we're just covering them all. It's a wide swath, and I was kind of a in, in kind of making a, a loose, you know, outline or order of what to go through. I was kind of uh, thinking, um, you know, it's almost like it's touching the various institutions, various spheres in society. Uh, from education to religion to, you know, politics and and whatnot. And whatnot. And in general, I mean, with some exceptions, but mm-hmm. in general, the news is not great. <laughs> it's a lot of, lot of weird and bad stuff going on. Well, and yet I hold, and yet I hold to an optimistic, so-called optimistic Amil position. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a post-mill. I'm not a theonomist. I've been accused several times in the last week or so of being a theonomist online because I critiqued Meredith Quine's views on the Sabbath, where he uh, distinguishes that the Sabbath is binding only on the church or at some other times he seems to say even less than that, that it may not actually be binding on anyone, but yeah. And you know, we just did a show with the restless podcast and then we released it on our feed last week about Sabbath laws. If you really want to go down that rabbit hole with us, but yeah, suffice to say, I've been called a theonomist multiple times for my takes on that, even though they're completely not theonomic and i'm sure the theonomist would be offended to be associated with my views (laughs) probably but 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 first section that we want to that we want to talk about was pretty interesting i had come across this article actually through not the b so for not the b subscribers uh this one's possibly already on your radar, uh, not to be, of course, is the non-satirical uh, news outlet of Babylon B. The real life things that we that almost could be satirical and sadly are not. 
Uh, this one was uh, from February 10th, 2024, when The Bee put it up. Um, they had the title, Prestigious Academic Publisher Adds DEI Requirements for Peer-Reviewed Submission. So that's going to be fun. The actual article that they pulled from was uh, Sage Journal. Sage Journals, pardon me, adds DEI to the peer review process. And this is, uh, in short, is that when someone publishes an academic journal, for it to go into the journal as an accessible writing, uh, there are editors uh, and people that reach out to other academics, other renowned scholars to go and read through and review those journals prior to publication for them to be approved to basically state, yeah, hey, this is sound scholarship. They've done their homework. They're using uh, proper sources and such, uh, incredible sources and so on. Except this DEI process, um, Sage Journals is pretty large. It basically is an outlet for any numerous kinds of periodicals. The problem is that they now have a basically board of reviewers that... Well, let's just read some of that there. So the committee chair, uh, Dr. Holly Falk Krasinski, Krasinski, I don't know how to say that. Uh, she, her, that's, that's a good start, is co-chair of Elsevier's Gender Equity Task Force and vice president, Research Intelligence. She's actively involved in Elsevier's broader executive level inclusion and diversity efforts, advocating for greater gender diversity among STEM leadership and promoting sex, gender, and intersectionality-based analysis and research. She has been spearheading a collaborative effort that enables researchers to self-report their diversity data again. Let me read that. She's been spearheading a collaborative effort that enables researchers to self-report their diversity data, gender, race, and ethnicity within editorial management systems in support of an evidentiary approach to accelerating diversity and inclusion in scholarly communication and the research ecosystem broadly. Getting academics to report their information on gender, race, and ethnicity, topics that typically do not have to do with the, or should not have to do with the bulk of academic publications, unless perhaps your topic is in the areas of gender, race, and ethnicity. There's committee member Dr. Sarah Whitehouse, also she, her, the journal's manager, peer review and ethics at the Royal Society of Chemistry. I believe that's a, a rather renowned British group of state-sanctioned academics in the field of chemistry, where she is responsible for journals, peer review strategy, publishing ethics strategy, quality and impact, and inclusion and diversity in publishing. Sarah has worked in STM publishing since 2014 in a range of operational and strategic roles. And you go down to committee member Phil Hurst, he, him, publisher at the Royal Society. He has nearly 30 years of experience in the publishing industry with both commercial publishers and learned societies. At Current Science, he was a senior editor on electronic products. Later at the Royal Society, he successfully transitioned the journals and peer review online. He's launched both subscription and open access journals, including Royal Society and Open Science. And because this is, you know, someone on the DEI board, he leads in open science, research, integrity, and diversity. Committee member Gordon McPherson, he is the director 
director board governance and policy development. Uh, and he seems to be the only one that has credentials that doesn't seem to be explicitly focused on something of DEI. He's also, he's an engineer. He's also the only one here who doesn't list his pronouns. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, he's the only one that you have to ask. <laughs> Are you he, her, she, them, them, they, they? Uh, committee member, my favorite here. Um, <laughs> committee member Danielle, uh, no last name given. She, her is a diversity and inclusion practitioner with nearly 10 years experience in the publishing industry. Currently, the inclusion lead at – that's that's a position. Inclusion lead that uh, requires a lead at Emerald Publishing. Daniel, Danielle, sorry, has devoted her career to active listening and storytelling, which brings life to her work in inclusive recruitment, equality monitoring <laughs> – sorry, that's in equality monitoring. Oh, no. Employee training and that's a that's an Orwellian term if there ever was one. The Gestapo. (laughs) Employee training, sorry, and the retention and development of people with diverse backgrounds and abilities. Her last name is given at the end, Danielle Ormshaw, but but not given in the bio like all the others, like. This is someone who seems to write and publish things for a living and yet is not stylistically conforming to the rest of these bios. But anyway, so this article is describing a situation where basically whether or not you're going to be published in one of these thousand or more journals that Sage Publishing or Sage Journals has is going to be how many DEI boxes you check. Essentially, do you meet a DEI criteria? And that's going to have something to do with whether or not you're able to get your papers published in these journals. Well, I, ironically, there was an interview with that uh, that committee chair, Elsevier. So uh, Holly Falk Krzysinski on gender equality and research, where uh, she, her states that part of her <laughs> mandate is to make sure that there's, she, she's looking to address gender disparity, non-representation and bias in research. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it is also fascinating that this comes in light of the recent scandal at Harvard where the president of Harvard, who, I mean, let's be honest, she had the position she had basically because of DEI criteria and advancement. Her academic career was underwhelming. Her publishing record was pretty slim. And then it was she was ousted because it was found out that a lot of her work was plagiarized. So we see in there like what this kind of criteria in the academy is bringing and the kind of people that it's elevating. And then after that, we get this that is just it's doubling down on it. It's not any recognition of, oh, maybe this isn't the way that we should do things. We need to do more of it. We need to screen journal articles, not on their merits, not on what they say or what they argue, but on this. And this relates to some things that we've talked about before. Uh, particularly something I talked about last summer. I did a solo episode on the accreditation of seminaries. And one of the points I was trying to get across in that, because I looked at the criteria of accreditation, and they're definitely, even in seminaries, using and applying DEI criteria in admissions and hiring and things of that sort, and seeking to impose that on schools that want to be accredited. All this to say the Academy is completely fundamentally institutionally captured 
by DEI. Not only the secular academy, but the Christian academy as well. And we need to recognize this and, and look at it and respond and act accordingly. Yeah. I mean, if you think again, what, what we're saying is, uh, you know, thousands of journals that are under Sage's umbrella. Uh, this includes uh, things that have nothing to do ultimately with gender or at least should not have to do with a, you know, checking your boxes of DEI. There's 29 journals that are specifically for religion, including Anglican Theological Review, the Bible Translator, there's a Christian Education Journal, there's the Expository Times, uh, International Bulletin of Mission Research, Irish Theological Quarterly, Journal for the Study of the New Testament, Journal for the Study of the Old Testament, and Pseudopigrapha, Journal of Pastoral Care and Counseling, Journal of Spiritual Formation and Soul Care, uh, there's Pro Ecclesia, Studia Liturgica, Studies in Christian Ethics, Theological Studies Journal, Theology Today. Generally, for the most part, these, these are ones that have been fairly moderate, if not left for a while. But you can kind of see even that's not enough. Now we got to make sure that you go the full distance and can actually, you know, jive with the party line. We have to literally check boxes for what what's your ethnicity in order to throw this into their statistics. How this had come up to not the B was from uh, Adam Ellinger, professor at University of Houston, uh, the downtown campus, where he basically received an email that asked him to participate in this review DEI process, make sure that you actually can fit. He had called out recent journals for bias in positions and... He'd send out complaints to the various publications. Basically, they ignored him. He says, these experiences opened my eyes to the fact that the ideological capture of the university didn't simply affect the content of classes. It affects which research is published and which receives the peer-reviewed stamp of approval. There are many subtle ways that the peer review process has been compromised by left-wing activism, but 2020 began a more aggressive effort to ensure that the pages of the peer-reviewed journals aren't compromised by inconvenient truths or unapproved perspectives that run counter to the post-George Floyd consensus on campus. You just put it in these terms, you're not going to get published if you don't buy the narratives, uh, if you don't fit in with the agenda. So, I mean, this is academic censorship on a wide scale. This means that there needs to be a strong push for further creating and endorsing of uh, independent and small publishers. Yeah. And really, too, I think just an evaluation of the criteria we use to determine the quality of scholarship. This is not, by the way, the first scandal that has you know, rocked the whole world of academic journals and peer review. Uh, some years back, before he got into doing some of the things he is now, you might have heard the name James Lindsay. Uh, him and some, some colleagues of his basically did a sting operation against several academic journals where they wrote a bunch of fake papers that yes. were a bunch of DEI gobbledygook and were able to successfully get them published. Another example, years before, there was... A primitive AI built called SciGen, and it was used to basically generate several papers as word salad <laughs> on like computer engineering subjects. So like this ought to be a real scientific discipline and was able to get some of those published in journals. Yeah, that book, Cynical Theories, that one where him and I think Helen Pluckrose, he goes in uh, 
collaborated with in writing these things. And they go and do a takedown of critical theory. I believe they're agnostics, if not atheists. And yet, I mean, yeah. they're, they're going against the status quo. Not an endorsement of everything James Lindsay right. says or does, because sometimes he can be a bit silly. But... uh <laughs> But yeah, no, uh, that this is something that he's been shining light on for a while and others have too. And part of this is there's almost, I would dare say, a certain incestuous mm-hmm. tendency in the Academy that getting published for its own sake is like the measure of success and the measure of good scholarship when it's, as we learn, the reasons you get published and the things you get published might not be all of that. I, I think this leads into broader questions and broader discussion, as is the things I've brought up before about accreditation and funding and stuff about what are the the priorities and the incentives in academia and how do those potentially conflict with the priorities and incentives within the church? And the ones under which we as God's people are supposed to operate. And I think more and more we are seeing distance between them. It's getting more and more difficult all the time to be an orthodox and biblical Christian and also be a well-regarded scholar. Mm -hmm. How we deal with that, you know, you mentioned the need for independent publishers, and that's certainly part of it. But it's probably more than even that. We need, like independent institutions schools we probably basically are gonna have to at this point build or rebuild our our christian academic infrastructure because the one we have has been thoroughly compromised and infiltrated and captured in a lot of ways mm-hmm. well in the in the realm of satan now yeah speak of the devil <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> yeah. Speaking, uh, speaking of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Well, and you're like, wait, you can't associate those things, but we didn't do it. Yeah, it wasn't us. It was the left. I don't remember if we talked about this particular statue. I think we did. There was a statue unveiled in New York City that is clearly like a statue <laughs> of a demon or a statue of like a pagan goddess that... Um, was displayed at a courthouse in New York City. Well, it apparently uh, is on a road trip or went on a road trip to Houston, Texas to be displayed at the University of Houston. So again, university, uh, I believe a public university mm-hmm. in a red state. The statue has been taken there now and will be displayed there to honor abortion and memorialize the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, this according to reporting on LifeNews.com. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, of course, was a radically liberal justice, defender of abortion and all the other terrible horrors that America has done over the last half century or so, because she was on a long time. She died during Trump's presidency, and so... I don't remember if if Gorsuch or or Barrett replaced her, but yeah, so we have this demonic statue now being associated with the sacred religious persons and rights of the American left. Yeah, I can't recall. I think that the statue is supposed to be a Medusa, something of the sort. I mean, it, it definitely puts off that kind of that kind of look. Like the arms look like 
its tentacles or snakes or something and then there's the hair that's the hair is kind of twisted to look sort of like goat horns which what is it with the satanists and the goats there i mean i'm sure it's some sort of like playoff of of jesus teaching of separating the sheep from the goats and you definitely don't want to be the goats but apparently they do so yeah i guess so it's just kind of a little funny. It was called The Witness. You remember the, the book of like uh, RGB's like legacy of feminism, right? Uh, I mean, what she's she's known for. She's put in as like the topic of like strong women and like role models for, you know, uh, for kids books, like board books of RGB. She's got like so much merchandise when I feel like, I don't know, she was hardly like spoken of prior to her death. <laughs> like, I mean, aside from yeah. like those who actually, you know, kind of follow the news, but. Yeah. yeah, otherwise, it's just like she was hardly spoken of. And she when she dies, she turns into like this massive cultural icon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think a lot of it is, you know, it's the reaction to the Dobbs decision. There's a good chance that if Ruth Bader Ginsburg had either died sooner or later or had retired and many called on her to retire during the Obama administration so that she could be replaced by another liberal justice. The Dobbs decision and others like it may not have happened. In fact, almost certainly they wouldn't have happened. That's a bit fascinating. Uh, so she's basically kind of become this feminist icon and this icon of abortion and stuff. But in certain ways, you know, also kind of symbolizes its failure and defeat as well yeah the maker is uh, shazia sikander she likes to explore the theme of justice she's had a uh, you know exhibitions in new york city hava to breathe air and life <laughs> so it's quasi mystical new age spiritism behind it this one is uh, the 18 foot statue uh in madison square park you know perhaps the most famous of the or one of the most famous parks in new york city the statements on this are so she's in a golden cast her hoop skirt inspired by the stained glass ceiling dome in the new york courthouse uh, her braided hair symbolizing a ram's horn to project strength it's a religious icon essentially yeah it is a icon of the spirit of a new age essentially and uh, self-empowerment uh, particularly associated with Ginsburg. It's deliberately transgressive. Like, there's a line later in the article. says, written on the sculpture is the mm -hmm. word Hava, meaning Eve in Arabic and Hebrew, which Sikander celebrated. Eve is also the first lawbreaker, right? Yeah. It's like, uh, I was just going to bring yeah. that one up. Yeah. That's not really... I mean, they're in a way, they're, they're saying the quiet part out loud. Yeah. This is lawless. This is glorifying sin and the overthrow of all that is good. Deliberately transgressive and edgy because it always has to be. Yeah. What even then is the nature of like of art, the point of this kind of thing? There always has to be some kind of message associated with it, some kind of purpose. And this is simply a uh, rejection of a created order, woman first, overthrow the patriarchy kind of thing. Also, let's tie this, of course, into, you know, women that want empowerment for the sake of uh, abortions, you know, to be self-autonomous uh, over their body, uh, which includes over apparently the body of someone inside of them. Yeah. And throwing off any other authority up to and including God. Yeah. Leaving the realm of Satan for the Antichrist, we move into... So re really staying in the realm, but a different aspect <laughs> right. of it. So we, we go into, back to our old friend, Pope Francis. 
The papacy is so back, is so back, is so back, is so back. <laughs> I think it's going to be here for a while. Yeah, it's not going anywhere. So, uh, more pushback. On fiducia supplicans. Is that what we're doing yep. next? We'll do that first. <laughs> yeah, so basically, we we talked about when we talked about fiducia supplicans, did our uh, additional installment on the papacy, uh, just how much conflict and confusion there had been about that decree and all the things that it brought. We went through a list. We looked at all the different countries and how some were receiving it and others were receiving it quite differently. So we have an article here from the National Catholic Register from a Cardinal Mueller, the Prefect Emeritus of the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, said that the frequent efforts to try to clarify and explain fiducia supplicans, so if you haven't been with us, this is the decree that allowed these certain kinds of blessings to be done for homosexual couples. Efforts to clarify and explain fiducia supplicans are only deepening confusion, and what is needed instead is a return to the clarity of the word of God, rather than bowing down to this absolutely wrong LGBT and woke ideology. Now, the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith, I know we've talked about that. It basically is like the theological ruling body of the Vatican, and so we're seeing even from within that, or this is, so he's an emeritus, so he wouldn't be a part of it anymore, but a former part of that, former member of that, is saying we, we've gone off the rails here. <laughs> so you, you end up with what many people have been pointing out, and even when we had kind of read the kind of uh, uh, live updates on responses from various dioceses throughout the world, how there's so much conflicting perceptions or contradictory perceptions about this. Like Andrew had said, some accepted, some rejected entirely. Pope Francis goes and explains away the African response who have entirely wholesale rejected it by saying, well, that's it's, it's a cultural thing that they culturally... Uh, are against homosexuality in certain places and countries in Africa. It's punishable by death. So that's a cultural matter. But for the rest of us, it's something that has to be followed. Pope Francis doesn't really want to mess with the uh, the Africans. Yeah. <laughs> this has turned into a blurring of the lines. And Pope Francis from the uh, Italian Catholic journal, Credere, had said, I think it was just a couple of weeks ago now or two weeks ago, where he had said, nobody is scandalized if I give a blessing to a businessman who may be exploiting people. And that is a very serious sin. So first of all, on, on that statement, should you then be giving a blessing to someone who's known as a businessman that is exploiting people? That already begs your question. What point are Probably you not. What point are you trying to make? <laughs> Pope Francis is a Marxist and a would-be communist, yeah. but, you know. Just a way. <laughs> uh, yep. He goes on saying, so whereas they are scandalized if I give it to a homosexual, this is hypocrisy. No, I, I would say the hypocrisy starts at when you give the blessing to the businessman <laughs> and then profess to be of the church. And then he, he continues in saying he blesses everyone in the confessional. And this is this is a great one. I don't bless a scare quotes, homosexual marriage. I bless two people who love each other. Let's let's sit on that there for a second. Uh, love is love. Is love is love is love. Yeah. Except when it's sin. <laughs> right. At our church, we've been doing a Bible study in the book of Galatians. 
we just were talking about this last week, the part in chapter five where he's talking about liberty being used as an excuse to bite and devour each other. We're we're using a book by uh, Dr. Joseph Pipe, uh, the former president of Greenville Seminary on Galatians. And this is something he talked about, and it's an important point, is that when we're called to love one another, we're called to love one another according to the law. So there in Galatians, Paul quotes, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's a summary statement of the moral law, the Ten Commandments, how we are to love God and love neighbor. We are completely, as a society, unmoored from that. Love has gone from being something objective and grounded in the law of God to being something just completely subjective. It's what makes me feel good, what makes me happy, what makes me most myself and self-realizing. It has nothing to do with any standard of what is good or what is right. It's just love is what, what I want and when I want it. There's truly a no love of neighbor if it's not flown out of the love of God first. You need right. to know who God is as God is love in order to even love someone else and acting for their best interests. And this includes in the seventh commandment as thou shalt not commit adultery uh, in, in the words of the uh, Heidelberg Catechism that uh, all unchastity is forbidden. Uh, but this also includes inciting someone to unchastity and basically encouraging someone or giving them cause to continue in unchastity. And that's precisely what this does. Or to use the the Westminster's terms, we're not only to avoid sin, but as the larger catechism says, all means and occasions thereunto. We give the platform to highlight the sin here. You know, we're, we're putting them on something of a personal pedestal. And if we can state this is part of what had been going on with this Alistair Begg situation of giving advice to a grandmother with a grandson that was getting, quote unquote, married to a uh, non-binary individual, non-binary persons, and uh, wanted his grandmother to attend and beg, you know, encourage and say, yeah, you know, uh, basically don't reinforce the stereotypes that Christians are unloving, hateful people, uh, even bring a gift. He detached doctrinal stance from scripture, clear prohibitions against encouraging sin to go and to basically forsake it for personal subjective relations. It removes uh, the nature of actually acting as a witness for what we truly stand for and against. We have compromise our convictions and beliefs to maintain, you know, friendliness, to maintain a relationship with people. Cardinal Mueller had uh, had stated some, uh, something similar, uh, even beyond subjectivity to a relativity. In uh, basically his response to these things, he had said, Your Eminence, addressing Pope Francis, at a recent plenary of the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, The Pope had reiterated that blessings of irregular relationships should be spontaneous, non-liturgical, and not require moral perfection. So in other words, be private and not something done uh, as a full wedding mass, something non-church related. That this is about the blessing of individuals, not the union. But if this is the case, was there a need for such a document as such individual blessings are already permitted? The Nathal Catholic point. registered, adding, There was no need for this document, but now the later interpretations are relativizing themselves, and they are only deepening and widening 
the confusion. They cannot explain what the difference is between a liturgical and the private benediction. They are putting forward a nebulous connotation instead of saying what is absolutely clear in the gospel, the word of Christ. You could see this even when there was one parish and priest that was put under discipline from Pope Francis for basically hanging a, a giant rainbow LGBT inclusivity banner that's saying like, you know, all are welcome and basically making a production of the blessing. I think the, the priest went and busted out a rainbow stole for the occasion and blessing the uh, homosexual couple. And it made it look like a liturgical uh, action, a uh, church sanction. But then you had uh, on the other end in New York City, uh, you know, one of the first public advertised, you know, Twitter uh, posted uh, or X whatever posted uh, blessings. Uh, what's his name? James, James Martin. Martin. James Martin's. SK. James Martin's uh, blessing. <laughs> uh, advertised uh, all throughout Twitter. And that was met with endorsement from the Pope. Yeah. So not not even consistent enforcement and application from the Pope, because those Jesuits got to stick together. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Jesuit club. Yeah, Rome is burning, and we're here for it. But this is coming to a church near you as well, if it hasn't already. As we, I mean, as we already saw with Alistair Begg and such. <laughs> now, we'll continue in the realm of the Vatican now, just uh, before moving on from this realm of religion. From the National Catholic uh, Reporter, so a different NCR than the Catholic, uh, National Catholic, the National Catholic Register. The National Catholic Reporter, the article titled, Inside the Vatican's Synod Office, New Style of Leadership for the Catholic Church. There's been a push we brought up in several prior episodes about basically a more inclusive church that looks to utilize the hoi polloi's perspectives and involvements in leadership. The little people in the pews, there's been a, what was called the synods on synodicalism that occurred in, in this past October, um, which had for a time, uh, we mentioned in previous episodes, been Basically going and paneling and interviewing particular congregants through various dioceses throughout the world to basically get people's feedback on the church. Where do we need to improve? Where do we need to pull back on? And then taking that to the bishops going and then taking that to uh, larger meetings and comparing notes. The thought is basically... The Holy Spirit is living and active uh, in all the people, and we need to be following then what all the people uh, are feeling compelled and convicted to do. It's something very feeling-led. So how is the Spirit working in the consensus of the people? We need to be listening to that. And I'd, I'd stated before that uh, this is a very dangerous route because basically it doesn't really matter what the people say, whether they're biblically aligned things or not. The Vatican can at this point really just say, you know, they can do what they want and just say, oh, well, the sin, the, the spirit, according to our data, is, is working in people in this way, whether that can actually be verified or not. So they, they can essentially do what they want. And one of those ways is, of course, the matter of LGBTQ, so on. But other topics include priestly celibacy. Should priests get married? Can they get married? Or women's roles in the church. This concept is basically looking at how can we make the church appeal more to modern sensibilities is the bottom line of it i mean they're being led by a spirit but the question is which one yeah seems a lot more like the spirit of the age 
Yeah, Pope Francis has been, you know, very, very friendly with and optimistic with women's involvement in the church and in leadership roles. And that kind of has to beg the question of well, what kind of leadership roles. They can't, you know, outright say, oh, they, they can become priests, but they're considering uh, making a diaconate, ordaining women as, as deacons, which in the Roman Catholic system, we have to keep in mind, is not like the Protestant system where they are... Uh, the office of Christ's mercy in handling uh, the physical care of the church, but that for the Roman Catholics, they are junior priests, basically, uh, that they can do homilies, they can basically help conduct the mass as long as they're not consecrating the elements themselves, because only a full-on priest can do that, but they can administer these sacraments in certain capacities. You can basically do almost all the roles, but the actual consecration and relationships with the bishops. But it's an inclusive church. Pope Francis says, don't reduce women's roles to the question of ministry, which might be a fine uh, statement in and of itself. But he's, uh, we brought up in the past how he, he's, he's thinking of something of of saying that the church is woman, the church is a mother, the church has its figure in, in Mary. There's a Petrin church, a patristic and masculine church that has been given too much attention, said the Pope. We need to have a Marian womanly church. We can't function without church as woman. Yeah. And those of us who are Protestants who are now living in the exile from the exile from the main line, <laughs> you know, if they dare to ask us, we could tell them where all of this leads. But yeah. But have fun. Yep. Have fun with that. <laughs> And that is all the time that we have on this OFAD, our roundup of various topics. It was supposed to be one brief episode, but it's turned into multiple episodes. That's just how we do things. Yeah. That's how we do things. We're both pastors. <laughs> we can't be particular brief, particularly brief about anything, it seems. That's right. Just be thankful we didn't put this in three points. Although it may be three parts. Maybe. Yeah, three parts. There we go. Oh, boy. Uh it's happening. Uh, so anyway, thanks for listening. You can reach out and complain or whatever at the usual places, OF80podcast at gmail.com, Facebook, and I guess it's okay to call it X now at OF80podcast, but if it's not okay, then it's still Twitter. Yeah. If you have any complaints or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I assume there can't be. It's just it's complaints or things like complaints. There's nothing good or redeeming about this. <laughs> well, and with that, we ask Heidi to take it. <laughs> yes. Thank you for listening to this episode. For the latest news and updates, visit our substack at onceforalldelivered.com, where you can also support our work with a paid subscription. You can also follow us on social media at OFAD Podcast. If you like what you have heard, leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts and spread the word about the show. Once For All Delivered is hosted by Andrew Smith and Caleb Castro and produced by Andrew and Heidi Smith. A special thank you to our founding members, Eric and Kathy Hepker. We hope you will join us again next time on Once For All Delivered.